0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Football is still on course for coming home, but as cases continue to rise, COVID-19 is beginning to feel a little too close to home. So is this really the time to lift pretty much all remaining restrictions? We're going to explore the Prime Minister's confirmation that July 19th is the day when the work-from-home order ends, ordering at the bar begins, and the masks come off unless you're feeling courteous. The government hopes that the ending of these rules means that the country will get spending and the post-pandemic economic recovery will quickly gather speed. But is it doing enough to plan for a green recovery? A new report of ours says the government is wasting an opportunity, that's in the run-up to the big COP26 conference, to show the world how to go greener. We're going to speak to the report's authors. And ahead of Sunday's big game at Wembley, we'll end with a quick look at how sport can interact with governments and the fine line between joining a victory parade and and scoring some embarrassing political own goals joining me today in our trustee virtual studio are Alex Thomas who leads our civil service work hi Alex hello Bromin. Tom Sass, our associate director and the IFG lead on our COVID and net zero work is back with us as well hi Tom hi Bromin. and I'm delighted to be joined today as well by John Rental chief political commentator at the independent hi John great to have you with us hello there are you back in parliament by the way
1: Uh, I'm not at the moment, but uh, uh, I will be this afternoon.
0: Great. How is it there?
1: It's quiet. Um, It's uh, easier to get a cup of coffee. And we're still being assailed by Steve Bray, the uh, shouty man, the stop Brexit man. He's now playing loud music in between shouting through a loudspeaker that uh, Boris Johnson is a liar, a cheater, a charlatan and a fraudster.
0: On that note, let's start with Freedom Day, as it's supposed to be. The Prime Minister has now taken the decision to unlock the country and coronavirus cases are climbing very fast. But the government says the data shows that the vaccines have broken the link with how many people end up in hospital and how many sadly die. That means, he says, the Prime Minister says, that this is the moment to do away with all these restrictions which have affected all our lives for the last 16 months. Tom, does this make the UK an outlier? Well,
2: Yes and no, really. No one else has quite taken the the, the sort of gamble or or calculated risk, depending on your perspective that we have. And certainly, you know, the WHO and some other scientists have been quite critical of our approach. Most other European countries are, are actually a bit more open. Um, than we are, but they have kept in place some restrictions and no one's quite gone for the sort of full Freedom Day. The problem is that the epidemiology of the spread of the virus and the progress of vaccination is now so different in different countries that it's really quite hard to compare. And I think the difficulty for the critics of the government, and I think this is true of, of Labour as well, I'll be interested in John's view, is that we already have a very large outbreak in this country and that's not going to slow down unless we're prepared to go back into a much harsher lockdown. So if your judgment is that the cost is not worth that, then it becomes a more finely balanced question of how you sort of ride this exit wave.
0: Brilliant. You've given us lots of points to talk about, but just if we can stick on one, does the government have the data to back up this relaxing of the rules, or is it really dates that have won the day?
2: I mean the, the key bit of data that they do have, which you mentioned at the top is is on the weakening. So I took a look at the, the COVID dashboard this morning. 32,000 reported cases yesterday, 2,400 people went into hospital, just 33 deaths reported. And that final one is obviously the key one to watch out for. The two bits of data that that we don't really have or or that we can't say with certainty, the first is to what extent that deaths figure is going to stay down. I think it is going to get a bit hairy in the coming weeks and months. Hospitalizations were up 50% last week we don't really have a perfect p- picture of how many people there are susceptible out there and quite how many are going to be caught by this wave. I think the other bit of data that we don't have is a clear picture of the wider impacts of a very large exit wave. So long COVID sort of impacts that could have. Chris witty didn't give much reassurance on that at the, the press conference on Monday. And then the final thing I would say is, you know, the key argument that Whitty made on Monday is that delaying this uh, last step any further would lead to a sort of more harmful winter outbreak. He says they've got modelling on that. It would be quite good to see that.
0: Thanks for that. Well, John, what do you make of this? Is this about Boris Johnson's long advertised desire to open up, uh, though he did get more cautious? Or is it the economic hawks of the cabinet really pushing through saying we've got to open up? You, what do you think has driven this?
1: Well, I think those are the same thing. I think uh, I think Boris Johnson really does want to open up he is a libertarian at heart and he you can tell at these press conferences when he's announcing restrictions he's not happy about it he wasn't particularly happy about announcing the the relaxing of restrictions either because he had Chris Whitty uh, standing next to him and he knew he had to be a bit careful about uh, what he was saying but I think the uh, the big picture is that Uh, as he pointed out at at Prime Minister's questions in a rather uh, mischievous and uh, political game-playing way, I don't think the Labour Party actually disagrees with the government's approach fundamentally. I mean, if if the only difference is whether mask-wearing should be compulsory uh, or voluntary, uh, then that's not a a very significant difference in approach. I think both parties agree that we just have to go ahead now that uh, the vulnerable population has been double-vaccinated.
0: Tom referred to Labour's position, and and you just have as as well. Just take us into that a bit. What do you make of Labour's attempts to oppose the government's um, arguments on this?
1: Well, it's difficult because in the end there isn't that much difference, but Labour's still trying to just stay on the restrictive, pro-lockdown side of the argument against the government because that is where public opinion is. I mean, public opinion uh, supports uh, mandatory masks, uh, and you know the most restrictive possible approach to to our borders, but uh, Labour doesn't really want to go beyond that because I think it recognises that you know a sort of zero COVID type approach isn't realistic, and therefore we do have to open up and it accepts the arguments that Chris Chris Whitty made, which is in many ways it's better to open up now in order to reduce the risks of uh, of the NHS being overwhelmed in the winter.
0: But you put your finger on a really interesting point, which is the the political risk that Johnson might be running in this, because public opinion, as you said, is very much in favour of caution and very conscious of all the sacrifices that people have made, both in their own lives and and sadly, loved ones that they they, they might have lost. If the death, the, the, the number of people dying from this rises, do you think there could be a big backlash and Johnson might have to indeed reverse course?
1: If it's big enough, yes. But I mean, that's the calculated risk, as we're calling it. We're not calling it a gamble. The calculated risk is that the number of deaths won't go up anything like as much as it did in previous waves. And we do have a slight advantage in, I mean, there aren't many comparable countries, uh, but Israel is possibly the best comparator because Israel has vaccinated a a significant proportion of its population, it's only just starting to deal with the with the delta variant, and so it is reversing now and requiring masks, um, and and reimposing a few a few minor restrictions. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in Israel. That may be a pointer to the future for us.
0: Alex, can I bring you into this? I'd love to hear from you on uh, your your insight, and you've worked in government on how the government makes this really difficult decision about. What an acceptable level of deaths is.
3: Well, I suppose the the first point to say is it's not, uh, this is, you know, this is a, a, a very novel situation. It's not something in this context that a modern government has ever had to quite deal with before. So governments make assessments about the value of life all the time, whether it's about how much to invest in transport or um, how much money to put into the NHS or which drugs to license or whatever. But this sort of um, macro level death number thing is new and uncharted territory. So they will have been feeling their way a bit. I think, as Tom mentioned, they will have models and Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and their uh, teams will have been advising the Prime Minister and the new health secretary on what the consequences of their decisions may or may not be, but I think one of the things, both internally and externally, they will have wanted to avoid is to get into too many metrics about precisely the numbers of deaths that are or aren't acceptable, um, because the moment you put a number on it, that boxes you in then as a, a, as, a as a government, uh, and so they will have been pointing out the consequences, weighing the the judgments. And in the end, it's a political judgment about how many uh, deaths and uh, serious uh, cases of illness are acceptable. I think the number in the back of their minds, though, is a bad influenza year, which is generally sort of 20,000 deaths. And so I, I would expect that they will have had a kind of 80, 90 deaths a day uh, number in their minds, because that equates to that sort of uh, number over the year. But the truth is, no, nobody really knows.
0: And those are extra deaths, aren't they? I mean, it's a very difficult question to to pin down because obviously some people who suffer very badly from flu and perhaps die of it are ones who are more vulnerable anyway.
3: Yes. And the same is is true as we've seen with COVID. Uh, and of course, you don't really know what the additional mortality is until several uh, months later when those uh, figures come out. But I think the grim rhythm that we've all become used to over the last 16 months of uh, daily death totals is, is going to be, and, and those reported deaths, that's why those reported deaths are so important,
0: because that's the politically uh, resonant uh, number. Tom, what do you make of these those estimates by the government's uh, on the government's side, and this there's, this there's, um, calculation—if that's the right word—about uh, deaths, and, and what can the scientists, Chris Whitty, you've you talked about, Patrick Valance, do if they're not on board?
2: Well, I think one of the most interesting things on Monday was actually Whitty coming out and saying personally that he was pretty squarely on board um, with this approach of unlocking now for the reasons we've talked about—that that sort of pushing this exit wave further towards the winter could make it worse in his view, though he did note that scientists were divided on that. I think Alex is entirely right that it, it's difficult or impossible even for for politicians to stand up and say, this is the exact number of deaths which we think are acceptable for for very obvious reasons. But I think apart from that, there are things the government can be doing. You know, SAGE consistently throughout this crisis has been publishing some of its modelling and some of its advice to the government, usually with a bit of a delay, I think now that we've got a sort of week or so until the government makes this final decision, it would be good to see some of that advice and and some of that potential modelling that's underpinning it. Um, I think that would help build a bit more confidence in the judgment that the government's making.
0: John, just take us back overall to wrap this up. Your your sense of how much of a risk, not a gamble, um, that Johnson is running on this and what his options are for reversing it, if you like, if it doesn't go as he would like.
1: Oh well, I mean, I think um, the, the irreversibility slogan was uh, is is, me- is meaningless. If he if he has to reverse, I think uh, public opinion will support that. So, in that sense, it doesn't. Uh, this it is doesn't from matter. a prime
0: minister think- who, who reverses many things. Well, well, exactly. I mean You know, Boris Johnson's
1: not really going to surprise people when it, if he turns out to be slightly inconsistent about something. That isn't a problem. I think he's probably made. The right calculation broadly, which is that uh, it, which is that now is the right time to to, to to ease restrictions. And I think he will continue to enjoy the benefit of the doubt on uh, on having rolled out the vaccine so successfully. I think that that uh, vaccine halo effect will continue to uh, to, to to boost his popularity uh, for some time. Although you know it will wear off, and, and normal politics will resume after that.
2: Just to add, add to what John said, that I think the, the government does have some options in terms of sort of ways it might be able to modify step four if, say, sort of cases and hospitalizations and deaths got much worse than they expected without sort of going right back to, to earlier steps. You know, they could do things like strengthening financial support for isolation. We know that's been a big problem. And you can see that being a big problem for a lot of young people who are going to keep getting isolation requests. As I've had just in the last week, throughout the, the summer, uh, they could look again at, at sort of ways to accelerate the vaccine program. I think we've we've seen a little bit of a, a drop off in demand there. So I think there are kind of is a sort of modified step four or kind of localized approaches that, that the government might still want to call on.
0: task now begins, Also, the government hopes, to rebuild the economy as people pile into pubs and restaurants, hit the shops, head back to the city centres. But what type of economy is the government actually trying to rebuild? It wasn't that long ago that Boris Johnson promised a green recovery, and it's not long now until the UK hosts the big COP26 conference on climate change. So just how green is this recovery looking? We're joined now by IFG researcher Rosa Hodgkin, who with Tom here is the author of a new report of ours on the green recovery. Rosa, great to have you with us.
4: Hi, Bronwyn.
0: In short, tell me your your feelings. In short, you're not impressed?
4: Uh, No, I wouldn't say I'm particularly impressed. There's been a lot of talk from the government about a green recovery, but there hasn't been very much action to actually make that happen.
0: you compared the UK with other countries. Where do we stand in the league table?
4: It's a bit difficult to make direct comparisons because apart from anything else, Spending is announced on very different timeframes. So a lot of the UK green recovery measures have been over quite short periods and other countries have announced plans that cover five to 10 years, for example. So it's not always straightforward to make direct comparisons. But I think we can say that the UK wouldn't be at the top of the league table. So, for example, France has committed 30 billion euros of its recovery plan to the net zero transition. The South Korean Green New Deal is around 2% of GDP while the UK brought in 3 billion in retrofit measures in the plan for jobs in July, 2020, 2 billion of which was the green homes grant, which I think is generally agreed to have been a failure and ended up being canceled by March, 2021. And then the 12 billion 10 point plan. But the CCC a finance advisory committee said that only t- about 3 billion of that was really new spending. So While it's hard to draw direct comparisons, I think it's fair to say that the UK's green recovery package has been pretty modest compared to some other countries so far.
0: It's really interesting. And the world can look at these figures or they can look at our report. So that may put pressure on the UK ahead of this conference. How much of a a diplomatic problem do you think this is going into the COP26 conference?
4: Yeah, I think it's a pretty big problem. The approach to the green recovery kind of highlights the government's general weakness on net zero, I think, which is that... You've got the rhetoric is all there, you've got very ambitious targets, but what they haven't set out is a detailed policy plan for how you're actually going to get there. And I think as the government at Comp26 trying to push other countries to decarbonize, you would have more credibility if you could say, this is our plan for how we're actually going to deliver net zero and this is how it fits with our plan to recover from the pandemic rather than just having rhetoric that's not necessarily backed up with a lot of concrete action.
0: Tom, you've been working on this for a long time, um, and indeed with Rosa on this report. What do you reckon the UK government should do now?
2: So uh, I think the key thing is for the Treasury and the Business Department, which is ultimately responsible for climate change across government, to get together and sort of see that they have a much clearer responsibility for making this green recovery happen. As Rosa says, we've sort of seen all the right rhetoric and it's sort of sprinkled in, in, in ministers' speeches and so on. But actually, it just is, hasn't been a priority. If you look back at the, the last two budgets, the spending review that we've had since the coronavirus pandemic has been going on, green measures have really been at the fringes of, of those statements. So I think the first thing is actually a prioritisation issue. It's the, the key ministers involved and in particular Rishi Sunak seeing it as a a main priority of theirs to make sure this happens. Obviously, the big chance to do that is in the the budget that's coming up in the autumn. That's going to be just a month or so, probably or or around the same time as COP26 itself. So that's the moment for Sunak to sort of stamp his authority on on climate change and, and net zero as an issue. I then think underpinning that, there are a few other things that we need to see from government that would enable the UK to secure a green recovery, So the first of those that Rose has sort of pointed to there is actually a a more coordinated way of looking at how to make policy. The big failure, the Green Homes Grant, sort of failed because government didn't really have much sense of what suppliers were out there that could deliver these changes. They didn't really talk to any of the local authorities who knew what the sort of housing situation was like on the ground. The other big enabler, in in my view, is skills. Um, So we hear a lot from this government about green jobs. Boris Johnson likes talking about that very much. The government doesn't really yet have any plan on, you know, what green jobs it thinks will be needed across the economy, what skills will be needed and what kind of training and, and education is needed to support that. So I think we need a much sort of clearer approach to to sort of getting the skills in place that will actually fuel this recovery.
0: John, what do you reckon about Boris Johnson's green commitment, um, having heard what you, you have just heard from Rosa and Tom? What does he need to do?
1: Well, I don't know about um, me rushing to defend the prime minister, but um, I, I felt you were being a bit too negative. I mean, I think you know huge progress has been made towards uh, decarbonising the uh, electricity generation sector, and the targets that have been set for decarbonising transport are are real and significant. I mean, and and it's not all just you can't measure it all just in terms of government spending. I mean, setting the targets and, and forcing changes of behaviour in the in the in the private sector is is just as important but i mean yes there is there is still a gap there but i think that gap then raises questions about the the wider international picture there's no point in in the uk getting too far ahead in achieving net zero if china is still building coal power stations that are uh, you know all these fashionable statistics i don't know how many how many a week it is but I mean, that does undermine the, the credibility of, of a net zero target in, in just some rich countries in the
0: West. Well, it undermines the effect of that, but not necessarily the polit- political value. And you, you, you make a really important point. I mean, that I think everyone would say that the mood and the kind of sense of government commitment has really changed. There's a lot of talk about things that are going to be very uncomfortable and expensive for people, like changing their cars or their gas boilers, or this kind of thing. Yes, we haven't seen how that's going to happen yet, but there is... Um, a bit of pressure behind it alex what, what what do you reckon you've you've worked in this area in, in government and you've seen you've heard it over the years how would you judge the level of seriousness at the moment
3: yeah so i think the the, the rhetoric is serious i think there is a genuine That's very yes. nicely put <laughs> uh, yeah there, there, there is a there is a genuine awesome, it is yes yeah, yeah there's a genuine intent there and i think I, I do think this prime minister and this government see the domestic benefit of being ahead of the game on some of these. So if we are world leaders, John's right that obviously the main prize is to get an international agreement to cut carbon emissions globally. But there is a domestic benefit to being at the cutting edge of electric vehicle production, as we've seen uh, uh, in terms of UK investments over the last week or so. So I think they get that. One of the things are. Be watching for, though, is uh, there's a narrative starting to come out, we've seen from Steve Baker and Nick Timothy. So those uh, voices in the Conservative Party about what they see as a democratic deficit in some of this. So you set up the Climate Change Committee, governments commit to targets, it's quite easy then to say there are these sort of nefarious officials and, uh, and uh, quangos that are requiring the government to do something without public consent. So I think the government does need to have a real eye on public consent. And then the final thing is, of course, as Tom pointed out, absolutely, this is a cross-government problem. It's a whole of government effort. We've One of the reasons why we've been relatively successful at decarbonising our energy production is that energy and climate change policy were put together in the mid-noughties And so the sort of incentives within government were aligned to take action on that. We've been much slower on housing. Transport uh, and and the and agriculture and the other big sectors that that will need to decarbonize, partly because of um, a sluggishness and a and a lack of uh, kind of political and administrative coordination over years in government.
0: You put your finger on an interesting Whitehall point, which is that we don't have a department for energy and climate change anymore, even though they have been brought together, as as you say. Does that matter, or is it now, as the rhetoric would have us believe, you know, embedded in all parts of government policy? But there isn't a champion there. As a department pushing for this,
3: yeah, and and Bayes within itself uh, includes the, energy business and, and the business includes energy and climate change, but it also includes business and it also so there's a, there are trade offs. It's almost where you want the pinch points and, where, and the tension points in government to to be. So I think it does matter, but equally you can't have a department for everything. So uh, if you bring a sort of mega department together that does include transport and uh, housing and, uh, and, and and agriculture, y- y- the same tensions will just emerge in a different way. So the the key is having a political commitment in the center of government from the prime minister which it seems like we've we've got as we've been saying but then the uh, the administrative means through cabinet committees through powerful units in the center to make sure that heads are being cracked together in in those departments in the right way and that individual secretaries of state when they're making decisions tilt towards the government's objective of Net zero, rather than uh, uh, rather than some of the many other objectives that they'll be they'll be juggling. You know, building more roads or uh, building more houses.
0: John, is there room for labour here, or is it another area where it's really difficult for them to oppose the government?
1: No, it is it is very difficult because I mean that is one of the things that uh, Boris Johnson has achieved. I mean, as you say, he's sincere at the level of, of rhetoric about these green objectives. Um, I mean, I, I must say, having watched him at the Liaison Committee uh, this week, where I think much more than any other Prime Minister, he gives away what he really thinks. He was very happy to talk about hydrogen and, and all sorts of exciting, futuristic, green things. But when it came to actually putting up people's bills, and en- energy bills, he, he suddenly uh, backtracked in the way that all Prime Ministers have in the past. And uh, you get a sense that he's not really prepared to push Uh, against uh, against public resistance and I think that does raise the important I mean Alex is absolutely right that does raise the question of whether there is public consent for this I mean I've seen I've seen some opinion polling suggesting that you know most people in this country don't even know what net zero means
2: I think John's completely right on that I mean in the sense that this is a government that is, is very keen to talk about the sort of upside benefits of net zero but there are going to be difficult elements of the transition you know money that needs to be spent on changing people's boilers and so on. And it was interesting to see the Prime Minister sort of talk with concern about that at the liaison committee. I think the the difficult thing for the government, we've got a delayed sort of heat and building strategy, which we've been waiting for for a long time, which is meant to set out some, some plans on that following on from the sort of failure of the, the Green Homes grant. I think if you keep ignoring this, then you sort of cede the ground to, to people like Steve Baker who just want to talk about the downside. Um, so I think actually you need a sort of positive case to come out about why this transition is important and it matters. You can't just keep silent on all the difficult bits.
0: Yeah, he's obviously from the right of the party and very sceptical about this. So Rosa, he, um, help us wrap all this up. What can we expect from the government between now and, and the actual conference in November?
4: Well, there's quite a few strategies due to come out. Like Tom said, we've got the heat and building strategy. I think there's a transport strategy. There's the Treasury's net zero strategy. So I think we're really just going to be watching for whether those strategies are still very kind of high level ambition or whether they actually have some detail about how they're going to change everyone's boilers, get to the um, EV targets, those kinds of things.
0: All right. Well, thank you. And thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Robin. Okay. And with that, let's turn finally to the um, what's indisputably on the front pages. And um, it isn't for all kinds of reasons, net zero or even coronavirus. It's football. That isn't classic IFG territory, perhaps, but if Boris Johnson can paint paint himself as a bona fide fan of the game, then I'm pretty sure we can. John, can winning international football teams translate into bounces for governments and can losing teams have the opposite effect, do you think?
1: Yes, I think there is some uh, academic research on this from America that big sporting events do do benefit uh, incumbents. I think that's probably at state level rather than national level. But the important thing is that politicians think uh, that there is an effect. Um, I mean, I've just been reading uh, the astonishing bit in Alastair Campbell's diaries from the Euro 96 competition when England got knocked out by Germany in the semi-final. Alistair Campbell uh, very honestly confides in his diary that he wanted England to, to be knocked out because if England had got to the final, then the John Major government would have benefited from the feel-good factor.
0: It's not new for politicians to seize on sporting glory, is it? Uh, No.
1: Uh, You know, Harold Wilson did uh, comment, I think, I can't find the actual quotation, but he did say something like, uh, you know, England only wins World Cups under Labour governments after the 1966 uh, victory. Um, And, you know, many Labour people blame Harold Wilson's defeat in the 1970 election on uh, on England being uh, knocked out again by Germany uh, in the 1970 Mexico World Cup. Uh, which happened just a few days before the election. Although there were also uh, some rather bad economic statistics in those uh, those final few days.
0: And what about Tony Blair? His, uh, his, his famous header um, with Kevin Keegan. You think that won him a few votes?
1: <laughs> well, it certainly didn't lose any. I don't think he was quite good at um, co-opting football sentiment and i think it's interesting although england were knocked out of the 96 euros that sort of sense of you know football coming home and uh, the sort of national euphoria um actually continued even though we did get knocked out and added to the sort of sense i think of the country preparing for a fresh start and that was uh, that's a remarkable achievement from opposition to try and co-opt some of that uh, sentiment uh, and take it away from the from the incumbent government
0: yeah, it can go wrong. I remember a painful episode. I was going around as a journalist, going around China with Gordon Brown before he became prime minister, when he was very much wanting to be <laughs> prime minister at that long period. And and he was saying to various uh, Chinese students who, who came around, um, oh, I really wanted all this time to be a football coach. And they said, in terms of uh, loser, we really want to be accountants and finance ministers. So they were really unimpressed. <laughs> un- <laughs> un- <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's Gordon. Gordon Brown had awful problems, of course, because he, being Scottish, uh, he he said that you know he went through it rather sort of methodically and logically about you know he would support Scotland in any competition until they were knocked out, and then he would transfer his affiliation to England if they were still in, um, which got him into all sorts of. Uh, Logical scrape
0: still might still still might as he stands up to uh, argue for the union. And those who uh, slip up. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the David Cameron. Our marvelous, a marvellous bit of national comedy when he confused which team he supported. That that <laughs> tends not to go down.
1: He's so he's so embarrassed about that. If you if you read his his memoirs, he appears to it appears to have been a genuine mistake. But uh, this thing about politicians pretending to be interested in football—I mean, the extraordinary thing is that Boris Johnson. I mean, everybody knows that Boris Johnson doesn't really know anything about football because they've all seen that video of him rugby tackling a uh, a player in a in a in a soccer match, and yet he some, somehow gets away with it, putting on a, a football shirt over his suit, and uh, because he's sort of just genuinely enthusiastic and excited about
0: stuff. And he's kind of a theatrical character, Alex. What what do you- what do you make of that
3: well i mean it's interesting you mentioned Gordon Brown because of of all prime ministers he probably was the most authentic football fan yes. and yet got absolutely no, no credit for it at all and, uh, and and Boris Johnson manages to you know if you can fake the authenticity you 've got it got it made I, I suppose the other side of this uh, john's covered the sort of public and presentational side, but certainly in the Blair Brown era there was inside government there was definitely a sort of tribal sense of uh the importance of supporting a football team and being able to to join in the banter and the office chat about it and i was i was wondering about this this morning that that it was almost an opportunity for civil servants to show a bit of tribal passion uh, in, in this, uh, you know, dispassionate world that, that civil servants often live in. Building relationships with ministers was really important, and being able at the very top of government to show a bit of uh, a bit of bonding and a bit of tribal loyalty over a football team, I think, was quite helpful for some very senior civil servants uh, during the during the uh, Blair and Brown governments. Tom, what,
0: what do you? Reckon that politicians might learn from, say, Gareth Southgate, who's I mean, got an enormous amount of credit for the way he's spoken and conducted himself. As has the team.
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, Gary Neville, who's a sort of known Labour supporter, was making this point in no uncertain terms last night, sort of contrasting Southgate's leadership qualities with, with some that he thinks have been sort of lacking in the in the last eighteen months in the UK among politicians. I mean, I think it's really interesting. If you look at what what Southgate's done, he's clearly very skilled as a manager. You know, people sort of criticise his tactics sometimes, but actually has a sort of broader sense of being a manager in terms of sort of setting a clear overarching goal for the team and getting everyone together behind that goal. I was interested to read this week that he's been studying the all-black rugby team and the sort of learning from some of the methods they use. He's also clearly a very good man-manager, I noticed after one of the games that he sort of mentioned the whole squad, including all of those getting on. So sort of maybe some lessons there in sort of managing ambitious colleagues on the back benches or sort of thinking about, um, you know, how, how, you, how you include the whole team. Working towards a particular goal,
3: and the way he's navigated the, the sort of wokeism debate is is interesting as well. He sort of he seems to have found a space in that that is not overtly political, but has diffused some of the tensions that that both sides of that that debate seemed seemed anxious at times to,
0: to stoke. All right, what about the points that Marcus Rashford has won against the government? I mean, how worried should ministers be about the? you know, instinctive popularity that successful sp- sportsmen have.
2: Well, it's an interesting point because I think this team certainly has, has sort of used their their public profiles to sort of campaign on issues in a way that we're just not used to footballers doing in the past. You know, some people this week have been raising the prospect of, you know, whether this team would accept the invitation to Downing Street and the tour afterwards uh, or, or not. Clearly, you know, they particularly if England... Do go on and, and win on Sunday, which of course is a, is a big if. Um, but if they do, they're going to have huge public profiles, and they're going, to, you know, what the, what they say is going to be uh, even more prominent. So I think it will be an interesting one to see how the government sort of manages uh, the, the, the the remaining part of the campaign and then the sort of aftermath.
0: That's a really interesting point, John. What do you what do you reckon? How does the government, supposing the team wins, how does the government handle this this nationally adored team then?
1: And I think it's an absolutely fascinating phenomenon, the the change in the relationship between footballers and the popular media. I mean, footballers used to be of interest because of their wives and girlfriends. We haven't heard any of that uh, this time round. The the tabloids were only ever interested in their their sex lives and what they were doing doing wrong. And now they've transformed themselves into uh, sympathetic, uh, public tribunes of the people you know marcus rashford's campaign mm. on, uh, on on free school meals was uh, was extraordinary and as as uh, as you said you know gareth southgate's leadership and his his, his navigation of that tricky uh, kneeling question uh, was exemplary and um, showed real sort of political skill and subtlety and i think that's a that is a remarkable transformation
0: alex take us back finally to the kind of um if you like, the business end of this. Uh, Johnson's now lobbying for the UK and Ireland to host the 2030 World Cup. The 2012 Olympics were a huge success uh, for Johnson as well. But is hosting these events a good thing in the long run, given the expense involved, the risk? Japan is really worried at the moment. All this stuff.
3: Yes, I mean, I suppose it depends what you value. There's a a short-term boost for a, a prime minister who who wins a big sporting event and I suppose that's some um, that's what will be forefront of you know Tony Blair's mind when he was lobbying for the Olympics and um, and Johnson's mind now so so to that extent it's sort of cost-free I suppose but then of course the actual legacy of these things can be incredibly contentious the risk of them turning into you know Millennium Dome style uh, flops or white elephants is huge I suppose the the sweet spot is if you can kind of uh, align a, a sort of Michael Heseltine's style regeneration of the Docklands um with a sporting event, as London twenty twelve tried to do. But even then it's 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 gonna be very contentious. So you might get a, a short term high from winning the winning the bid, but leave quite a legacy of uh, of of uh, bureaucratic and uh technical challenges for for your successors.
0: Which people have to mop up for years afterwards. Well, that, that's a long way in the future, and I think everyone's looking only as far as Sunday at the moment. So, with that, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Tom Sass, Rosa Hodgkin, and especially to John Rentoul. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got some great recordings coming up, including a look at what makes Australian-style policies such catnip to some British politicians. And then we've got an interview with Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk where you can find our new paper on Net Zero. Enjoy the game on Sunday, everyone. Whatever the result, we'll be coming home to the podcast next week. See you then.